Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi everybody, before we get started, I just want to let you know that two spots have magically appeared on our Jane Eyre pilgrimage. We are going to be walking in January of 2022 through the West York Moors, carrying our Jane Eyres with us, studying with brilliant faculty and talking about this gorgeous book in its original setting. To find out more, go to readingandwalkingwith.com. That is readingandwalkingwith.com. There are two spots left. This chapter picks up seconds from where we left Jane. Jane walks into the room where the fortune-telling gypsy beckoned her. As a reminder, we're using the term gypsy even though it is deeply offensive, and we are using the term gypsy in order to make clear the distinction between the literary concept of a gypsy, which is what Bronte is using, and real Romani people. Gypsy, as a concept, was created in the British literary imagination and was exploited to make a point about white British people. Romani are real people whose identities are being tokenized for literary devices. Jane walks into this room fearlessly. She is skeptical and not particularly curious about what this woman is going to say to her. She tells the gypsy straight up that she doesn't believe in fortune-telling. One of my favorite Jane lines is in this first chapter that we are reading for today. I can recite it by heart. It says, I can live alone if self-respect requires me so to do. I need not sell my soul to buy bliss. I have an inward treasure born with me, which can keep me alive if all extraneous delights should be withheld. Except it's not Jane who says this line. It's the gypsy, speaking on behalf of Jane, reading her thoughts and her fortune and her forehead. But even the gypsy isn't who she says she is. The gypsy is Rochester in drag. What the actual fuck? I asked Deborah Nord, who we heard from last week, about the use of gypsies in literature. Here's what she said. Clearly, there's a lot of interest in literary criticism of the last, you know, 20 or so years in this idea of the other, in the way that we're interested in in cultural and political terms. And Edward Said, who wrote about the, the representation of the Orient in his book Orientalism, was particularly, I think, astute in describing the other as a figure who represents both what one wants and what one fears, and so in the case of the gypsy, the, it's the sphere of being uncivilized, of being homeless, of being criminal, but also in many writers, the desire to be free, to be liberated, to be unconstrained, 
by social norms, by laws, etc. The other within is not a foreign other. It's an other who lives within one's culture, but is separate from it. So in, in this case of the gypsies, they're there. They're always on the periphery. You can see them. You can see them encamped on the side of a road or on the commons. You might see them traveling on the road, but they are not part of your social world. So they aren't an other that comes from another culture. They're British. So they become a symbol within British culture of another kind of way of being British, which is perhaps more ancient, more original, more primal, and associated very often with a kind of pastoral way of life that's gone. Rochester is trying to find a new way to be British. He's trying to find a new life for himself, a new way in general. And to some extent, he is willing to break every boundary, gender boundaries, moral ones, legal ones, to find this new way of being. Rochester, as the gypsy, tries to draw Jane out. And for the most part, he fails. He tries to get Jane to admit that she has feelings for him. Jane bobs and weaves the Muhammad Ali of the trap Rochester has set. The gypsy tells Jane that it is likely that Rochester will marry Miss Ingram, trying to get any reaction from the stoic Jane. Jane stays tight-lipped, not letting the pain of this revelation that the man she loves will marry another show. Which is when my favorite line pops in. Rochester, as the gypsy, once again reads Jane's forehead. He says that brow professes to say... And then comes my line, the brow professes to say that Jane can live alone. Rochester gets it. Jane would rather be alone than compromise herself. It is a truth about her, and it is duly noted. The gypsy's facade begins to disappear at this point in the conversation. She starts to say odd things. And it is then that Jane realizes that it is Rochester under all of those clothes. The play is ended, he says, and he takes off the gypsy's robes. Rochester asks Jane if she's mad at him for his deception. She says, hang on, let me think if I embarrass myself. No, I don't think I did. Then fine, I can forgive you. But whoa, was that weird of you. Jane then tells Rochester, by the way, while you were busy fucking with me, a dude showed up here. His name is Mason. Rochester suddenly gets deeply disturbed. Rochester sends Jane to go get Mason and bring him back to Rochester. She does. And then she goes to bed. End of chapter. Chapter 20 starts with a scream. Everyone in the house wakes up from it. Rochester comes and tells everyone that everything is fine. The screen was from a servant who'd had a nightmare. Everyone should go back to bed and he'll deal with the distressed servant. All the guests seem to follow his orders, but Jane goes back to her room and instead of going back to sleep, gets dressed. She has a sense that she is going to be needed, and sure enough, a moment later, Rochester knocks, asks her to bring a sponge and smelling salts and to come with him. They go up the stairs to the third story. The third story has always been covered with tapestries on the walls, and now, in the middle of the night, one is pulled back. There's a door behind the tapestry, and it's opened, and there are voices on the other side of the door, a commotion. And whatever it is that's in there, 
it is more than just Grace Poole. Mason is in the antechamber, stabbed and bleeding. The sounds on the other side of the door are inhuman sounding, loud and profoundly creepy. We are deep in the Gothic here. We talk to Dr. Katya Bowers, who studies Gothic literature. Here, she offers us one possibility of why Jane would want to write her own story as a Gothic one. Often Jane Eyre is classified as a novel of the so-called female Gothic. This is a particular strand of Gothic fiction that involves an exploration of the tension of victimhood and violence, particularly that inflicted on women because of their socioeconomic circumstances and the kind of entrapment of women. Mary Wollstonecraft, she herself was writing novels that were kind of sentimental and kind of gothic, but they were about very much taking up the theme of the woman who is not educated enough about the horrible danger that lurks outside in the world. So kind of the naive heroine who gets put into the world and then has to deal with all of the violence that could be enacted against her, right? Um, And that violence is not just sexual violence. It's not just economic violence, right? There are a lot of things that could happen to a woman who's too sheltered, right? Um, Which was the argument that Mary Wollstonecraft was making. And Jane Eyre fits right in that line. So there are a lot of kind of feminist studies of Jane Eyre that think about Jane as a um, part of the Gothic tradition in this vein. I probably should have done this before, but it is at this moment that we absolutely have to start thinking about Jane, not just as a character, but as a writer of the story we are reading. Where does Jane the writer end and Charlotte Bronte, the master of her craft, begin? Is all of this women's gothic scene setting part of how Jane is telling us her story, or is it just Charlotte? I think that it is in part Jane. I think that Jane, with all of her experience of abuse and corruption, is still writing herself as a naive character. She is writing as if there was a plot to keep her in the dark, not just about what's in the next room, but in how the whole world operates. And she's right. There is a conspiracy at Thornfield to keep her in the dark. She wants us to know both that there were nefarious things happening at Thornfield, and she also wants us to know that although she was only an open door away from those things, she actually had no access to knowing them. Rochester tells Jane to sit with the bleeding Mason and take care of him. He says that he will be back ASAP with a doctor, but Jane and Mason are not to talk to one another and stay put. Jane does as Rochester says, but she is horrified. She is deeply scared about what could possibly be in the next room and is, of course, terrified that it will break out of its chamber again and attack her as it did Mason. Too long later, Rochester returns with the doctor. The doctor tells us that Mason was not just stabbed, but was also bitten. Mason tells us that the person who bit him said that she would, quote, drain his heart of all its blood. Mason gets patched up enough for Rochester to send him away. Rochester is relieved by Mason finally departing. 
but Rochester is clearly still shaken. The sun rises, and Jane and Rochester have a quiet moment alone, watching the light. He then asks Jane to, quote, sit. The bench is long enough for two. You don't hesitate to take a place at my side, do you? Jane answers him by sitting down next to him. To refuse would, I felt, have been unwise, she tells us. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is On Air from Hot and Bothered. Oh my God, these two chapters are so wild. <laughs> there's there's a lot. <laughs> I mean, in addition to being so gothic, they're also, they're so Twin Peaks. It's like, it's like David <laughs> Lynch got his hands on Charlotte Bronte and was like, hey girl, let's see if we can make this even weirder. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's dig into one aspect of the weirdness, which you have already certainly mentioned in the intro. Let's talk about drag. Let's talk about cross-dressing. Obviously, there is a long history of cross-dressing in romantic plots. And of course, we don't have to look any further than the published name of Bronte on the cover of the original book, Her Bell or Acton Bell or Ellis Bell. You know, all of these authors are only able to publish as men right now. There's an element of cross-dressing there. You know, this trope in a romantic plot goes back earlier than Shakespeare. But of course, there are so many Shakespeare references in this chapter that it is definitely worth noting that I believe Bronte is being very aware of what she's playing with here. In so many plays, there is a central female character who dresses as a man to get away with something important, something that pushes the plot along, something that shifts a power dynamic. And of course, Bronte is schooled in this and is winking at it throughout this chapter. But one of the things that she's doing is, of course, reversing the gender dynamic here. As we've discussed in chapter after chapter, this way that she keeps turning these things on her head. It's not Jane who's dressing as a man to achieve some higher element of power to sort of push the social progress of the narrative. It is, in fact, Rochester who is dressing as a woman and a very marginalized and poor woman at that. This has happened before in literature. Euripides did it. Ovid or Ovid, depending on who you ask, did this. Ben Jonson did this more recently. Even Byron, Byron, who keeps coming up for us, you know, in Don Juan, Don Juan dresses as a woman to shift a romantic story. But the way that Bronte does it is, of course, really, really different. What Bronte is doing here is she is dressing Rochester as a marginalized woman to eliminate the power differential in so many ways in this situation. I mean, think about Victorian norms, first of all. You could not have a man and a woman sitting alone in a room having a private conversation like this. So this is just how they could have a personal conversation like this. Furthermore, he is transforming himself from this wealthy man who is Jane's employer to someone 
to whom Jane could unburden herself about her feelings. And it it completely shifts the dynamic. And of course, even though Jane says she has no faith in fortune telling, there is enough that happens in this scene that she does feel comfortable unburdening herself to a point that she can respect. And I find it tremendously fascinating as well as being tremendously, tremendously weird. (laughs) I mean, you have to tell me if I am just like justifying Rochester, but he is in love with her. He like wants to make a move on her. He doesn't want to make a move unless he's sure it is requited. And like, this is the best way that he can figure out how. Right. Like in middle school, you have your friend go up and say, my friend likes you, Lauren. Do you like her back? And like because they're not of the same class, there's no one who can be an intermediary between them. Isn't this just like a beautiful romantic gesture that he's like willing to degrade himself into seeming poor and a woman in order to find out if she likes him back? No, no. Okay, this is a situation in which I hate the game, but I might love the player a little bit. I hate the manipulation, but the the degree of effort, the extent that he goes to, you know, he leaves for the day and he cooks up this whole scheme and he dresses himself and he goes through this whole process. I mean, that part alone, I have to say, I am somewhat won over by. So much of it I find revolting, of course. As you know, I have so little patience for his trickery and his inability to just be aware of his power and to engage Jane how she deserves to be engaged. But at least he is really putting himself out for it. So I hate him for this too, right? The moment that I really disagree with Jane in this chapter is when he asks her, you know, do you forgive me for tricking you? And she's like, wait, let me think about it. Okay. I didn't embarrass myself. So I forgive you. And I'm like, what you did or didn't do does not impact how awful what he just did is right. Like someone digs a hole for you to fall into and you don't fall into the hole. That doesn't mean that he didn't dig the hole. Like crime still bad, but I don't know why I really believe that he has good intentions here about consent. I think he is trying to make sure that she likes him back. And I don't think he gets that satisfaction. The thing that he learns instead is she's not going to compromise herself for me. And therefore I have to lie and cheat and steal in order to get her. And then he can't take it anymore. And so he says, right? Like the play is played out and takes off his garb. So he leaves sort of unsatisfied and he doesn't try to get away with it, right? He doesn't say, I dismiss you. And then like go sneak out and sneak back in the front door. But that's because he feels like he can get away with anything and everything. (laughs) And we will see increasingly the number of things that he has gotten away with and will continue to get away with until he can't get away with anymore. This is someone who just gets away with things. He's also someone, you know, to whom maybe consent of her heart ultimately seems like the big prize. But think about all of the things that she doesn't consent to on the way there. I mean, she definitely doesn't consent to tell Rochester, her employer, (laughs) the answers to 
any of the questions that he asks her in drag as a fortune teller. There's just something about that that I feel perhaps he believes that he has the right intentions, but I don't believe that he has the right intentions. Yeah. And I, I think that that is true for the entirety of the book, right? For all of his big mistakes. I think what is heartbreaking about Rochester is I think he is a man trying to be good and he is so privileged and so sheltered and doesn't know how to try maybe to do it differently, that this is actually the best that he can do. And it's pretty awful. And I think it's just my cynicism about men as victims of patriarchy, that they have no incentive to be good. Something that a professor once taught me, and I know this is from a book, but that in the 19th century, the number one thing that women wanted to be that they wrote about in their diaries was good. And men, like men were not writing in their diaries that they wanted to be good. They wanted to be rich and powerful. And this is a man who wants to be good. Well, this is also a man who wants to get the girl who he wants. And that to me feels more overwhelming than an element towards goodness. I mean, I was thinking just today about this section of the book, and I found myself thinking about Woody Allen and Soon Yi, thinking about, you know, pairings like Rochester and Jane from real life, in which we have these older men who feel like there will be salvation that will just sort of be automatically almost like sexually imbued into their brains and their hearts, if only these virginal young girls can anoint them with their goodness. And I don't like it. So Lauren, I want to look closer at my favorite sentence. So what happens in the scene is that Rochester is still in his gypsy costume and he asks Jane to move closer to the fire so he can read her forehead. And I think part of the motivation for that with Rochester is that they've been in the same room for a week or two and he hasn't been able to just stare at her, right? To be able to look at her and like see what she's thinking and and feeling. And then also there's the physiognomy element of it, right? That he's going to be able to tell an essential part of her personality and her destiny if he's given the chance to just look at her face, to look at her forehead. And that's when he says, you know, he reads on her forehead this, I can live alone if self-respect requires me so to do. I need not sell my soul to buy bliss. I have an inward treasure born with me, which can keep me alive if all extraneous delights should be withheld. He is seeing how powerless he is in the face of this girl. He's like, she can be without me no problem if her self-respect is at stake. She does not need to compromise at all, and she will still be perfectly happy. She knows that she on her own is enough. She'll be fine, right? Like she can keep herself alive. And he feels the opposite of that. He's like, I can't be alone. I hate being alone. I am. He's in pain from his loneliness. He is willing to sell his soul to the devil to buy bliss. He does not believe that he is good and that he can survive without wealth. And so he is seeing her as 
totally capable of living without him. And he feels as though he is incapable of living without her. Well, and he sees her as capable of living without anyone, which at any time in history, but especially in the Victorian age, is a really profound thing. I mean, women were nothing but dependents for the most part. The notion of a woman aging alone was just anathema in this society. And he surrounds it with this notion of respect. He is able to say, this is your strength, is that you can be this. You don't need anyone. You are completely independent in a world that tells you that you are a dependent. And of course, she's been told that her whole life, right? As an orphan, as well as as a woman. And I think it's a really profound declaration of not just how he sees Jane, but also of a certain feminism that is surprising to recognize in Rochester. He admires this about her, something that would be shunned or suspect in another person's eyes. This is part of what he finds so extraordinary about her. And I love that he plays with the little physiognomy way of reading it, right? This is his way of performing the fake science. Or maybe to Bronte, it was a real science. Who knows? But to Rochester, I think he says it in such an arch way after he says this aloud to her. He he says, well said, forehead. (laughs) As though he thinks that's a total crock and all he's doing is saying, I see you. And... It is such an incredible way to be seen. I also think that it's very, very sexual. And I just want to note that for a moment. You know, this language about buying bliss, about her inward treasure, about extraneous delights. I mean, there is some very intentional language here that I'm not saying that he's talking about masturbation, but he is definitely talking about her being able to survive without the pleasures of a man. And I think that's really interesting. I also think that this is the moment that he's learning it about her. I think he's he's already known that he's liked her and loves her. He's already realized he's attracted to her. I think he's even already decided that he's going to marry her. I think he is realizing how independent she is right now, and he is not using it as an excuse to be like, okay, I guess I have to find someone else. He's realizing she's going to have to want me, right? Like there is going to be no angle at which I can convince her that she needs me. I don't have an argument to make here. I need her. She's fine. And so I just have to get her to love me. And that's my only way in. And I don't know. I think there's something interesting about the fact that he has to go into drag in order to be able to see the side of her. But I don't think he realizes until this moment, like, holy shit, I'm in love with someone who on no level means me. I also think, I mean, to your point about the patriarchal oppression of men's spirits, He is also someone who is not interested in the economic arrangement of marriage. He knows that every woman who he could possibly 
be joined with is there for his rent role, and Blanche is chief among them. He's aware that the whole charade that he's quite literally performed with her as the bride is something that is dependent upon the amount of money that he has and nothing else. That is where the interest begins and ends. And the fact that Jane is so completely removed from that equation, I think, is really significant to him. And Jane just moments before really confirms that, you know, I mean, Jane says to him that these stories run on the same theme, courtship, and promise to end in the same catastrophe, marriage. And the notion that Jane and Bronte are referring to marriage as a catastrophe within the context of this marriage plot novel, within the context of Victorian England. It's just spectacular to me. This is the last time I'll say I feel for Rochester because he's about to be such an unforgivable dick in the next chapter. But I also understand the desire to make someone need you if you want to keep them and therefore the powerlessness of realizing that they don't need you and they're just going to have to want you. That seems to me to be how women have been raised for generations, right? Like make them need you, make them need you because you're the one who knows how to cook and you're the one who knows where the casserole dish is and you're the one who remembers to buy the gifts for his mother, right? Like this desire to make yourself necessary, I think is an insecure person's way into someone else's heart. And so I think that Rochester is showing us a vulnerability here that he he finds it, really devastating to realize that on no level does she feel like she needs him. I also think there's this element of Rochester where he wants to be an outsider with Jane. He's just been obligated to be inside this whole social play, this whole house party, him and the Ingrams, this whole routine, which he clearly despises. And Jane through her whole life has been an outsider and she's clearly completely an outsider in that house, in that drawing room. And all he wants to do is be an outsider with her. And that's something that he can't do as Rochester of Thornfield Hall. He can't do that as the host of the house party. He can only do that if he in some way completely removes himself from his property, his wealth, his social obligations. And of course, dressing up in this way, performing this fortune teller act is how he attempts to do that. And obviously it's super problematic. And I think this is something which is worth making a call about later on in this episode, because the way that Romani, that as Bronte refers to them, gypsies, not just in this book, not just in this era of literature, not even just in the past, but continuously represent this sort of otherness that Deborah Nord spoke to and that seems to carry all of this mystical power. I think that it's it's a really tricky, super othering thing. But I also think that the othering is also intentional in Bronte's hands here. Yeah, he's playing a kind of blackface. He's pretending to be an identity that he's not in order to use that identity for 
social and political ends. It is a completely disgusting move. Right. And I think the blackface is actually the perfect term for it because he's not portraying an accurate identity. He's portraying an egregious caricature. He's portraying not just another person's experience, but actually no person's experience, you know, a cartoon of something, an idea of something, and a very racialized idea of something. So, of course, it's not just that he's in drag. It is performing this racial caricature. And Bronte is taking full advantage of that, right? She is using this like whole socialized idea of a race of people who are used as a scapegoat, as a plot device, as a way for these two people to have a conversation, you know, who otherwise would not be able to be alone and have this kind of conversation. So as as like interesting as it is to explore the ways in which Rochester needs to be an outsider in order to talk to Jane and needs to come up with this like really intensely roundabout way in order to have like a face to face honest conversation with her or at least attempt to see her. Bronte is still tokenizing a vulnerable population in order for Rochester to be able to have that conversation, right? So Bronte is just as complicit in this as her character. I mean, obviously it's totally gross and it's not just gross on Rochester's part because Rochester is a fictional invention. It is gross on the part of the inventor who is Charlotte Bronte, who I suspect probably knows as much about Romani as her fictional characters do here. But I do think that there is one thing which is interesting, even if I don't like how she's doing it, which is, you know, Bronte could have imagined a different sort of woman who could get Jane to speak to her in some way, who she, who she could be alone with. There are different ways of performing drag. The fact that she has chosen the drag of a person who would be considered erroneously as existing completely outside the British system, I think kind of speaks to how much Rochester does not want to be British, how much he feels trapped and oppressed by his Englishness and all of the requirements and expectations around that. He has seen a life outside England in the colonies as problematic as well as that life might be, which we also know he was in the end repelled by for various mysterious reasons. Instead of coming back to England, he spent these years traipsing through the continent, going to Greece. You know, he he clearly has yearned for a life outside the oppressive structures of England. And now here he is back in the thick of it, in his homeland, in his landed home, in the people who want to partner with him economically in some guise of love or marriage, you name it. Everything that he despises clearly is happening in the house right now. And all he wants to do is not be a part of it, i.e., not be English because how else can he opt out? Oh, it's so interesting. I'd never thought of that. He is constantly running away from England, right? He gets back from Jamaica and he immediately goes to France and later he's going to want to, you know, run away to France and Italy. You know, like this place is so offensive to him. And yet he's English, right? Like he's at the end of the day going to have to confront the fact that as much as we might love other cultures, we are only ourselves and he is just going to have to realize who he is on the terms in which he was born. You can't take all the good parts of it and try to throw off all the bad ones. 
Yeah, wherever you go, there you are. Wherever you go, there you are. And also wherever he goes, he's spending his English money. Which is all he's desired for by anyone except Jane, it seems, anyway. Yeah. Poor little rich boy. (laughs) I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Okay, so so Lauren, I have a ton of ambivalence about Rochester as Gypsy. I really struggled rereading chapter 20 because it's the first time that I was like, oh, I have no ambivalence. He's terrible. (laughs) Welcome. (laughs) And it's really the first time I've hated him ever. You were talking about this earlier. I hate how much he gets away with. I hate that he pulls Jane into this incredibly dangerous situation but also just more than dangerous, scary situation, right? Like who even cares about the danger level? This truly scary situation. Here, sit in a room with a man who you don't know, who is bleeding so profusely that his whole sleeve is stained red. He might die. He hopefully won't. I'm going to leave you here for two to three hours in the middle of the night after a blood-curdling scream. Keep him alive, A, and B, whatever attacked him is a door away. And C, and C, be absolutely silent. And that's the one that bothers me. Ask no questions, say not a word, just exist in service with no brain, no questions, no expression of fear. Not to get all second wave about this, but come on. (laughs) That is what bothers me. Asking someone to do a favor where they're scared when it's a life and death situation, okay. But don't ask him any questions and Mason, don't you tell anything to her. And the fact that they don't, the fact that neither Mason nor Jane disobey, like all previous actions of Rochester being feeling powerless. I'm like, you little shit, you have so much power. You can control two people when you're not even in the room. And of course, this came up in your essay, but I do wonder why. I mean, I I can understand from a plot 
perspective. I understand why we need Jane not to know yet what she will be finding out. That suspense, that the arc, that all of these things require her to be in the dark right now. But to put her in this situation after we have had such an empowered Jane, and after we've had Rochester recognize such an empowered Jane, and then literally not just silence her, but silence her in service to him, make everything be in service to him, have him bark orders at her, have her comply silently, just, you know, on the double I can't help but think that there's an element of this, which is so much about the fact that she is the governess and he is the boss and her job is to do what she's doing, except I feel like it gets experienced as love. And I think that that power dynamic is really messed up when you have someone who can give orders and someone who for their livelihood is obligated to follow them. But then there are all of these feelings. And so that obedience gets dressed up as devotion instead of job performance. But in Rochester's defense, I don't think he thinks she loves him. He's just been in this gypsy scene where he's like, you can live alone. Like, you don't need me for anything. And I think he's just asking her as a governess. And surely it's even outside the job description of a governess. (laughs) It absolutely is. But right, like we... I'm trying to imagine the ad that Miss Fairfax would have placed in the paper. Come educate the French orphan who's probably the bastard child of my employer. And by the way... (laughs) There will be an attempted murder from a mysterious creature behind a tapestry, and you will have to keep the blood in the man's body without saying a word overnight. Whatever you do, don't speak, don't look behind the screen, and also, please be prepared to teach literature and painting in the morning. (laughs) I just think that we can be mad at him for asking too much of a servant, And we can know that Jane is in part doing this because of devotion, but I'm not sure that we can blame him for exploiting her devotion because he doesn't have, he doesn't have faith in that. At the end of the chapter, again, he asks her about his devotion and what, what is deeply twisted to me is that at the end of this chapter, she feels more devoted to him than ever. It's like in for a farthing, in for a pound. She's like, I'm in this far and now I'll follow you anywhere, right? There's a line from the first season of Stranger Things that I think about all the time, which is, you two now have the real shit, shared trauma. This is such a moment of shared trauma for them. And yet, he's the one who gets to understand the scope of the trauma, who gets to participate in the creation of the trauma. It's just another moment when Jane is being lied to and where Jane is being asked to participate in something. Again, it's a consent question, right? So she's told that it's Grace Poole. She's told that that's a fortune teller. She's told that Adele is not his daughter. I mean, who knows about any of these things? And yet this need to trust him, because what else does she have? She has no one else that she loves. She has no other friends. She has no family. She has no other mode of employment. And she sees this man who somehow sees her, at least parts of her, and has a need for her and, you know, is is keeping her housed and fed and paid. 
I mean, and he even lies to her at the very end of this chapter, right? He's like, I'm going to marry Blanche Ingram. Isn't she pretty? Tell me how pretty she is. She's a rare one. Is she not, Jane? A strapper, a real strapper. He lies to her until the very last sentence of this chapter. He's completely taking advantage of her trust in him, of her faith in him. All right, let's talk about the Arbor scene. You know, this is in so many ways the moment that we've been waiting for, right? Rochester, not in blackface, not in drag, (laughs) sits down in the garden with Jane. They sit on a bench together, just like, you know, lovers have... (laughs) since the dawn of time, and actually tells her real thoughts in his own voice about how he feels about her. And in so many ways, to me, it should be the moment we have been waiting for. I feel like I should be awash in just pleasure and longing and thrill. And this is it, the star-crossed lovers under the arbor. And yet, All I can feel is this is all about what Rochester wants. This is all about what Rochester needs. Everything about what he says is about how Jane needs to be in service to him. All he has said to her all along, practically, seems to be this. How good she is and how much he needs her goodness. How devoted she is and how much he needs her devotion. How much he feels completed by her. And yet, there is nothing that he ever says to her about what he can give her. It is only what she can give him. I hate it. I hate it for Jane. I hate it for women. I just hate it. I hate it. And it makes it really hard for me to love him, even though even though I've sat on that bench under that arbor, metaphorically speaking, with that man and heard these things and wanted to hear these things more than anything and felt so satisfied and enraptured by hearing a man say such words to me without ever thinking, what have you done for me lately? But I want Jane to feel that. I want Jane to know better than I have. I want Jane to be able to show us a different way. The thing I'll say is like, it must feel great to her to feel useful, like truly useful. She is someone who until recently essentially could have disappeared from the earth and no one would have mourned her. Miss Temple, but like Miss Temple was used to burying young girls and Adele could get another governess. And here is a man saying, you, I need you and no one else will do. And I want that for her. I want it in different ways, but it's just, it's the first time in her life that the fact that she exists matters to someone. And the other thing is, right, he says, what if somebody could be my salvation? And he's gaslighting her and he's trying to get her to think that he means Blanche. But she says to him, no one can be your salvation. And she's going to say that to him again and again, right? Like, I am not an angel and will not be one until I die. Like, I think that she loves that he needs her and also rejects it and is like, you don't need me. And if you think you do, I'm going to disappoint you. But she does also say, I'd give my life to serve you. I know. If he was speaking to an equal of class, that would have more romantic meaning to me, perhaps. But I, I don't know, it would still rub me the wrong way. But the fact that he is speaking to an impoverished servant, it's horrifying to me. And 
at the same time, I don't know, what do you think about the fact that he keeps calling her his little friend? There's something about that that feels like, okay, it's a term of affection. It's the way that you are permitting yourself to express affection. And yet even that language feels like a power play. On the one hand, he's taking the relationship outside of the realm of employment and speaking to friendship. And in other ways, he's not just saying my friend, he's always saying my little friend. And it's true. She's she's small. She's 18. These things are not inaccurate. And yet there's something so diminishing about it. I mean, the other thing, though, is that he's saying friend and she then makes it about their difference again, right? Whenever I can be useful, sir, right? He's holding her hands and she goes back to sir. I feel like he is trying to cross that boundary and she keeps throwing the boundary down, which is why after she says, whenever I can be useful, sir, he's like, okay, I'm gonna go back to talking about Blanche. I do think that he continuously feels rejected by her. And I think it's idiotic because what she's trying to do is protect her own heart. And she's trying to remind herself he's my boss and not lose her job and like call him sir because he's her employer. But he feels like he's making this overture of my little friend, which is a mild flirtation, right? It's like the accidental bump of the elbow, just in case the other person wants to hold your hand. And she's smacking his hand away. And so he's like, okay, okay, I'm going to marry Blanche Ingram. But this is part of why it's so frustrating to me that we don't know what she wants in these chapters. We don't know if her concern is about saving her job. We don't know if she feels like, well, I believed that he loved me a few weeks ago, and then he vanished and he came back with Blanche Ingram, who he's now going to marry, so I'm never going to get fooled again. I wish that we knew, because what this is is opaque to me. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that I think she can feel is like deeply confused because his behavior is so contradictory. But you're absolutely right that anything that I am thinking she feels, I'm imagining. All we know is that at the end of this chapter, he turns around to everyone who's staying in the house and lies to them all. Mason got the start of you all this morning. He was gone before sunrise. I rose at four to see him off. Sure. So Lauren... Next week, chapters 21 and 22. What you looking forward to? Ooh, we go back to Gateshead and things <laughs> happen. <laughs> I don't want to say any of the things that I'm looking forward to because they'll all be spoilers. But man, I am ready for some karmic comeuppance for the residents of Gateshead. Yeah, she goes back 10 years later and the tables have turned. <laughs> So obviously this has been a very, very strange reading, reading this chapter of Jane sitting down with Rochester in 
fortune teller drag, not to even mention the subsequent chapter, but it is this portrayal of this, you know, so-called gypsy that is really sticking in our craw here. And so I wanted to call someone who could help us unpack it and consider it a little bit more. I happen to know a wonderful poet in the English department at Monmouth University who is from Romania and who has published scholarship in the field of Romani studies on issues of representation and appropriation and even code switching. Oh, my God, the code switching in this chapter. So um, let's call up Mihaila Mascaliuk. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. So this chapter, this chapter in which we see this dark man with elf locks and a bonnet by the fire in drag, representing what to whom, help us understand what all of this is. <laughs> Oh, it's it's complicated. So one of the paradoxes, I think, of, of 19th century representations of gypsies and gypsiness, and I'm going to use this at every single point during our conversation in quotation marks um, as a term that signifies the constructed nature of, of gypsiness, um, is, is, you know, the correct term, the term by which this minority self-identifies for the most part is Roma or Romani, with many of them also identifying by their specific group name called Darash, Kale, Ludar, and so on and so on, right? So one of the paradoxes, again, of, of 19th century representations of gypsies has to do with this very complicated position they have actually, they occupy within 19th century England. And since their presence in the early 16th century in the British Isles, they had been subjected to all kind of oppressive legislation that arose in an attempt to exclude them, to regulate their presence, to control their practices. And some of this oppressive legislation and the oppressive laws actually included deportation, imprisonment, enslavement, right? So this continues in the 19th century with further uh, legislation or anti-Roma laws that mean also to impinge on their traveling way of life, on their practices and so on. At the same time, while the Roma in real life is suffering uh, more than ever, probably in the 19th century, the literary gypsy is thriving. Precisely because they're perceived as quintessential outsiders and transgressors of social norms associated with gender roles, with social hierarchies, uh, mores that have to do with social mobility's ideas of ownership. So precisely because they become the embodiment of all this kind of transgressions, they are used very frequently as tropes to fuel individual and national fantasies. So you could see the attraction here, the attraction to the trope to and to all this possibility. And you could also see how this attraction can very easily turn into contempt and fear. 
So do you feel like this portrayal of Rochester and drag and Jane approaching Rochester and drag, do you feel like this is actually a far less racist portrayal of a gypsy than one might think? And that maybe what Bronte's doing here is turning it on its head a little bit of almost saying, okay, this entire trope is a costume? Or do you think that Bronte probably wasn't that knowing and is in fact trafficking in that trope just as much as anyone else might? I think both. I think on one hand, yes, absolutely. The fortune teller here is depicted in, you know, the very, with the same radically othering brushes that we see the, the gypsies portrayed in Victorian literature and literature before that. She's racialized. There are a number of references to her blackness and brownness. She's uh, presented as monstrous, excessive. And this is, again, a common approach to representations of gypsies. They're always represented as excess, as, as an object of abjection, um, besides a vehicle for fantasy. She's shockingly ugly. She's a shockingly ugly old creature, black as a crock, we're told, right? So she's she is in many ways a symbol of radical otherness and aberrant femininity, if you wish. And but I think what's important here in this representation and then also in the very fact that we have a man, that we have Rochester at least momentarily ready to relinquish his position as a man and relinquish his status, his economic status here as well, and become this disenfranchised, othered person who is both feminine and also masculine, right? That willingness to inhabit this role and then Jane's approach to this travesty and her ability to see through it, for me, is an indication that that Bronte was definitely, definitely playing with the trope and also trying maybe not to subvert it, but to to draw attention to the constructiveness of the of the trope. Absolutely. Would you say that the trope is always located in the female? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, the, at the same time, we have the Roma man. I mean, one of the other really interesting depictions of gypsiness or the gypsy threat in, in Victorian literature has to do with the gypsy man who is always out, who's perceived as a threat, um, he's out to to kidnap or to allure, to beckon away to the gypsy camp, the white woman, right? And so uh, absolutely, he, he represents, I think, also a threat to masculinity, to social mores, and uh, the thief as well, the gypsy thief here. So I think... The fortune teller is sort of the uh, the female or feminized version of the same continuum of tropes that polarize the gypsy presence in 19th century Britain. Either right, the the fortune teller is reconnected to the supernatural and could feed into these fantasies of a pre-industrial or pre-whatever it is, right, pre-hierarchical society, or the thieves or the potential kidnapper who is going to deflower, you know, and still away the good woman and the angel in the house and uh, corrupt her. 
What would you say the lasting damage is of these tropes? How have we been scarred? What is its legacy that we carry, whether we know it or not? I personally, I believe that the way in which literature, not just literature, but the art, arts and entertainment and pop culture have produced, but also widely trafficked and disseminated this, this tropes has had a real impact on the lives of Roma, Romani people who remain absolutely, I think, the most disenfranchised, the most misunderstood, the most discriminated against minority in, in Europe. Well, thank you so much. I've loved talking to you about this and I appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to On Air. We're a small show, so we need your support to run. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rom pod. And in two days, everyone, we are going to be watching Jane Eyre, the Michael Fassbender, Mia Wachowski version. So join us on Patreon in order to join us for that movie. We're so excited. If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman and our associate producer is Molly Baxter. We are mixed by Erica Wong and distributed by Acast. This week, we'd like to thank Deborah Nord, Katya Bowers, and Mihaela Moskoliok for talking to us, Julia Argy, Lara Glass, Nikki Zoltan, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 